Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth, and freedom will be defended. The Royal Military Police is an organisation whose commencement in operations dates back to the 13th century. However, the unit of the Corps of Royal Military Police was established on the 28th of November 1946 in recognition of the unit's service during World War II. My next guest on Protect and Serve spent more than 30 years as a police officer within the British Army's Royal Military Police Special Investigations Branch serving all over the world. Retiring as a full colonel and as the Deputy Provost Marshal, Len Wassell has carried out a myriad of different investigations on the world stage. From investigating acts of terrorism in Northern Ireland, shark attacks on British military personnel in Belize, war crimes and his most important role, supporting the repatriation of British troops during the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, carrying out the critically important work of establishing the cause of death of fallen soldiers and providing the answers and reassurance to families whose sons, daughters, husbands and wives died making the ultimate sacrifice. In this three-part episode of Protect and Serve we explore Len's career as a military police officer, the challenges of policing during conflict and the importance of his unit in the theatre of war. We discuss the challenges Len faced as Colonel leading sensitive investigations and the impact his career had on his family. We reflect on the evolution of technology, not only in speeding up the process in returning our fallen soldiers to families, but the challenges presented by soldiers capturing their engagements on body-worn cameras. 
All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Okay, well, welcome back to the Protect and Serve podcast. I'm extremely lucky and fortunate this morning to be speaking to, now I'm very glad to say a colleague as we're working together uh, at the firm that uh, I now work for and and the chap who's in front of me is our senior board advisor on. Len Wassell is a former colonel of the Royal Military Police uh, here in the UK. And as much as we talk about protect and serve in terms of investigating uh, police officers and police officers investigating right across the country, there are many different facets to investigators. And the Royal Military Police is one of those. Len Wassell, good morning. Welcome to Protect and Serve. How are you? I'm good, Ollie. Nice, nice to be here. To give everybody a bit of a context as to how we met, obviously about six months ago we crossed paths and as a result of a number of conversations and meetings, you're now happily working alongside me at uh, Ion Asia. So uh, it's been a great experience so far. Looking forward to doing some amazing work with you. But today, more importantly, we're here to talk about your amazing career in the British Army and more importantly, the Royal Military Police. Um, I start my podcast like every good detective we start at the beginning and to make the decision to join the forces is often one that uh, I would imagine family would partake in and have some sort of influence and decisions over sometimes it can be around maybe lack of academia or just pursuing the military because it's something family did what was the the route into the military for you and then what was then the the push into the, the, the policing side within the military? Well, the, my family uh, on both sides had a history of serving in the army. Uh, my dad was Coldstream Guards and my mum was Women's Royal Army Corps. Um, and and my, my grandfather uh, served during the Second World War. So the acceptance of a military career was good. But it's 1975, 1976. The economy wasn't good. There weren't any jobs. My first indication was to join Hampshire Police, my local force, but they'd stopped taking cadets at that time because of, of, of money problems or you know budgets. Um, so I, I was looking around and um, didn't fancy doing the apprenticeship role um, and wandered past the Army Careers Office. Um, which had marvellous pictures of paratroopers and tanks, which were the, the, the big things of the day, um, and thought to myself, oh, I'll go and have a look at that. So when I went along for an interview, um, supported by my mum and dad, um, and I sort of indicated that, that actually I really wanted to join the police but couldn't, uh, and I was handed a little A5 pamphlet, which was all about the Royal Military Police on three, the, the, it was a fold-out, um, and I didn't know at the time, but the officer in charge of the recruiting centre was a, a RMP officer with an SIB background. So um, um, he came down and talked to me and I thought that was reasonable. So I joined, I went through and at that stage you joined what they call junior leaders regiment. So I had to go through a selection process away for two to three days. Um, it did cop, went through a selection so process where your academic capabilities were tested uh, and you were you were streamed. And RMP, because of the requirement to understand and interpret law, uh, is right at the very top of the academic requirement. And obviously, I was successful and I was offered a place at Junior Leaders Regiment at Bovington, badged to RMP. Obviously, you're too young to go direct to training for RMP at that stage. Um, but junior leaders regiment is is what it or was what it, it says, which was a school for leadership starting at 16. 
And the object, the, the object was to train the warrant officers of the future by starting them off correctly at 16 years of age. Um, so I accepted that. Um, I left school at, uh, in April um, and on the 11th of May 1976, jumped on the train um, and, and went through all the basics, um, tremendous amount of leadership, obviously weapons training, tactics, things like escape and evasion. I was trained as a clerk, a radio operator, trained in German language training, because obviously our big, the, the big theatre at that time was the Cold War. Mm. Um, and Northern Ireland training. We did Northern Ireland training in our last term. It, it was based on terms, so we did four terms of about 18 months um, and, and worked through that. I mean, the other thing is that you were, you were, you were conditioned in as much as you were, you were generally fucked around by the world's leading authority on, on fucking you around, um, you know, marching <laughs> for miles across Dartmoor for no particular reason other than you had to march across Dartmoor carrying pieces of equipment which you would never use, which dated back to the Second World Listen War. Listen to what you're being told. Like you're I am getting pissed off now. First time I'm getting licked right now. Um, you know, I look at the kit that troops wear today and remember walking across Dartmoor with it absolutely hosing it down with a World War II poncho on, the only thing protecting me from the elements. And our combat kit was able to soak up about four to five times its own weight in water. So the discipline, the camaraderie, teamwork and thinking about the team and not thinking about yourself were, co were completely under, uh, you know, underpinned everything. Um, it, looking back and having met my instructors from that time, who, who became sort of pseudo parents to, to eventually 42 of us that passed off, it was brutal by today's mm. standards. It was utterly brutal, the training we went through, uh, log runs and, and the like, for, uh, punishment runs is, is the truth. Um, but, you know, it made you the people you are today. Um, um, and I'm still in contact with the guys that, you know, those, you know, sadly, a good number of them have passed away now, but uh, I'm still in contact um, with guys that I joined the army with at 16 years of age. And that tells you something about what that builds inside you as an individual and how you understand life as a group. So you had this keenness to follow a career in policing, but were pursuing that in the military. Police officers on in Civvy Street have the challenge and the reputation of, you know, from the nefarious characters of, of a disliked organisation because people don't want to be caught doing the wrong thing. What's the greatest challenge in terms of the reputation of the Royal Military Police amongst other soldiers and other regiments? That has changed over time. And, and actually, it, it, it's a little bit behind the curve of the problems that, that sort of civil, civilian policing experiences. But when I joined it in 1978, uh, we were not much beloved. I mean, the military police, and, and of course the, the chief officer of the military police is called Provost Marshal Army. They go back to the, 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 the Articles of War 1632 is what gives the Provost Marshal their, their basis. So, you know, the, the basis of military policing is centuries ahead of Robert Peel. Um, yeah. based, based on the fact that you needed to keep control of the troops out, 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 you know, in the many wars that we fought over centuries. So when I joined it, in, in, well, I passed out from my training in 78. Uh, it was slightly delayed because we all had to go off and be firemen because of a fireman strike at the time. 
which was interesting. And again, it gave you another, you know, it, it was all part of the great tapestry of building your experience. The, the reputation was basically the soldiery didn't like you. There is an underlying rank structure, obviously, within the, the armed forces. So there are rules um, and everyone understands those rules. And, and thinking about before coming on the podcast, the, most of the cases that I've dealt with happened when soldiers were off duty. They, you know, they, they get into trouble during the time they're on duty. They do they go on and do their job much as much everybody else does there. The only the only exception to that is fraud and theft. Most of the um, stock and trade of violence and drunkenness and all the rest of it that that all takes place during the uh, the sociable hours. I see here in uh, looking at your biography, in 1979 you volunteered to go to Belize into the Caribbean. That would have been an amazing experience in your early part of your career. Tell us about that sort of adventure overseas. The Sergeant Major Warrant Officer 2 at the time came in and said, I need someone to go to Belize. And I didn't really fancy sweeping leaves again that afternoon, so I volunteered. (laughs) I had no idea where Belize was and certainly didn't know it was in the Caribbean. So you can imagine 20 minutes later when I was educated on the geography. Um, And I was on on a plane at 6 o'clock the next morning. My whole life wow. had been packed up in a box and I, I had um, a suitcase and two two kit bags with me with everything I needed, including having had to go to the stores to draw jungle combats for the first time uh, and was on a VC-10 the next morning to, to Belize. Um, arrived there, it was a small uh, eight-man detachment led by a special investigation branch warrant officer with um, uh, a sergeant. Uh, from uniform as as the second in command, who I'm still in contact with today. And they were two gifted individuals in terms of their ability to police and investigate and what have you. There were six military policemen and two RAF policemen in that detachment. And we were all there was. There was was a a, a sizable battle group and training team out in Belize. Um, And the the battalion that was the uh, resident battalion at the time was the Black Watch. Now, you know, the, the Black Watch had a good reputation uh, and it was well earned. Um, and, and we had some interesting evenings sort of policing them in, in downtown Belize, which was, you know, it's not like it is today. I've seen photographs as it is today. I mean, it was 1979. It was policing in Belize was a was rather unique. But you got to deal with a number of things. I mean, we were unarmed, obviously, like our... Um, we didn't even carry truncheons or anything. So to be facing off against locals who were either carrying machetes and in one case, uh, a pistol uh, on one particular evening and having to talk your way out of that. They weren't interested in harming us. It, the, the soldiery had uh, seriously pissed them off. So they were getting quite angry. So we, we were doing everything we could to extract them from that, um, which... The, the, the soldiers of Blackwatch involved in that understood that we weren't there. We were there trying to protect them. We developed really good relationships with them there. But, you know, there were some very sad incidents. There was one young man walked off one of the Belizean islands at night. We believe he'd been drinking quite heavily during the day. And he was killed by a shark. We only got half of him back. Wow. You don't, you don't get cases like that not even off Cornwall you wouldn't get that oh. um, people getting injured and, and you know they were younger in training and being you know having to rappel down ropes out of a puma just to get to a crime scene to be able to do a body recovery and things like that these these were all sorts of 
things that we, we got involved in. Going back to the, um, the tragic loss of an individual to a shark attack in Belize, what part do you play in that investigation in terms of you know body recovery and advising family members and reports to a coroner or senior staff what's your involvement it must be quite an interesting investigation but equally somewhat traumatic if you're seeing some of these scenes for the first time in your career I mean, there were no such thing as family liaison officers or anything else like that. It, in those days, it was to a recover the unfortunate deceased, b recover the evidence, um, and then put a report together, which went in through the military chain of command, but would have been shared with the coroner. Now, coroners back then didn't really get involved with overseas deaths. Um, I think it was the case of Helen Smith, the lady that died in the Middle East, that changed that the whole canvas of that where we you know in my later career dealing with all kinds of deaths from terrorist killings to to sudden deaths and infant sudden deaths when we had to return an individual to the UK they would go into the care of a coroner this became really critical during Iraq and Afghanistan but we would conduct a full investigation so the investigation would focus on whether or not eliminating um or, or establishing any foul play to see whether or not you had a murder or a manslaughter. Um, and if it was a training accident or what have you, gathering the information so that the army could, could specifically learn about the what had taken place. So it could change what it was doing to prevent that type of, you know, that, that type of accident. It's an interesting one. So and then I assume you're working with local authorities and local government officials as well. So you're not only managing your own responsibilities, but you've almost got this kind of cross-jurisdictional thing, you know, element to worry about. Yeah, I mean, that's at treaty level. Um, mm. in, in, in certainly in Belize, it was at treaty level that, that matters involving the UK forces were dealt with by the UK forces. And that was agreed at governmental level. Um but also, I mean, that transposed with the NATO agreements for when I was based for long periods in Germany, where anything involving the UK forces, there was a, a waiver by the host nation, the Germans particularly, there was a, a waiver in favour of British jurisdiction. Um, and the, the way the treaty was set up is that the... Germans would have to waive their right to exercise primary jurisdiction, which they did in sort of 99.9% of the cases, because they a, didn't want them, or, you know, the time and expense of running them through their own court system. Um, but also that that there and the whole service law or military law as it was, was designed to provide the UK um legal framework for our people living and operating overseas and wherever they were so the 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 um fairness and justice and the process of natural justice um was applied to all servicemen wherever they were in the world so that i mean that's why we have service law and we we've always had a, a form of service law for our troops going back many, many years. At what point did you realise, because at the time that you went to Belize, you were a corporal, so you'd been in a, a period of time and had some experiences under your belt by that stage. At what point did you realise or did it become quite real and, and, and very much in your face that the role that you were pursuing and the job that you had taken up involved confrontation, involved dealing with difficult scenes and often 
troubling and were you prepared for those sort of emotions that you would feel and how did you manage them i mean that's a brilliant question it was just accepted if you're going to pursue that line of uh, of work then you tacitly accepted that you were going to become involved with um, traumatic scenes your professionalism kicks in you, you know that your training uh, and the and the way you approach things and you you know that the that the steps you have to take um you know from scene preservation to record keeping to gathering evidence and what have you um but for me there was always a person there was there was always a person at the center of this um i mean you know it's i i knew was i trained specifically to to deal with the trauma of this absolutely not you know and and i would imagine um the the same applied to policing in the uk you think of um, you know one of the areas where you have to deal with death a lot is roads policing Mm. um and i can tell you dealing you know working a, a, a you know attending fatal traffic accidents or tra- fatal traffic incidents or fatal traffic collisions whatever they call them these days um along involving servicemen that were in hampshire and wiltshire when i was, was in our, you know my first tour and talking to the traffic officers they accepted that was part of the job so you weren't trained you just accepted that that was it there was no reflection there was no support um did it traumatize me um i i don't think so at the time because the environment that you were in the professional approach that everybody took um and a, a big part of that is a thing we call the black humor you know you, you're yeah. in a situation and you know anyone that that that's been in those situations that that's used in a way to break that out and you know psychologists today will probably tell you what the value of that is um but no no the answer to that is no i was not specifically trained and no uh, did i did i expect to see it yes i did it wasn't an unreasonable expectation but when you you go down that line you're taking on different cases more complex cases you know i i knew that oh, i wanted to pursue the life of an investigator stroke detective but that was what where i wanted to go uh, and towards the special investigation branch but i didn't have a particular plan i mean literally i was getting by day to day probably in the first few few months of my career um but i didn't have a particular plan but i i knew what i liked doing uh, i didn't like digging holes and in, in, in the winter on Salisbury Plain, that that um, and you know directing traffic on Salisbury Plain as Chieftain Tanks roll past, covering you and making a big effort to cover you in mud, um, <laughs> um, with, you know, and, and then waving from the top of a very warm tank as you're freezing your cods off out on Salisbury Plain. Um, you know, th- those were the bits. You know, looking back, yeah, they were they were character building, but were they fun? Not really. In your bio, obviously. You- like most soldiers in your period in your in your career had some exposure to northern ireland and even at 21 years of age you're you're in northern ireland carrying out forensic recovery and photography work at murder scenes and bombings sometimes on your own here we see an attack of a familiar kind um, indiscriminate uh, it happened that only police officers were killed men and women Catholics and Protestants. 
In the heart of a staunchly Republican border town, the Union flag mourns for nine policemen and women killed by the provisional IRA. Now, they're, they're, they're very unique pressures. How do you... How do you manage the pressures as a young 21-year-old processing such scenes as bombings? Is there any particular episodes which stick out in your mind that you attended which you, which you vividly remember as being a challenge? The, the, yeah, I, I mean, there was one. There was the murder of two uh, UDR reservists at Warren Point um, and they'd been shot, shot dead in their office um, by the IRA. Um, and because it was Warren Point, uh, and because of the risks of even just getting to Warren Point, um, uh, I deployed in, in an armoured vehicle, um, and RUC as it was then, PSI, PSNI now, RUC uh, Socos couldn't get there. So I did the first first basic recovery, I photographed, I mapped the scene, I was 21 years old, I'd had a, a rudimentary uh, forensic training given to me before I took on the role uh, where I was based down in South Almar. Um, and, uh, but you just got on with it. It, 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 it wasn't till many years later that, I, that, that it dawned on me what I'd done that day. I mean, that, that was the first, that wasn't the first terrorist death I'd been to. The first terrorist death I went to was a young soldier who was blown up near Fermanagh. Um, and I remember that it was the first time I'd done body body part recovery because that's what it was. Mm. Um, and we were the only ones on the ground uh, with his colleagues who were providing the cordon. It was, it, it, you know, that you, you look back. If I look back at those things, but at the time, you almost had to have either rhino skin or the ability to let the whole thing wash off you, you know, um, because you, you couldn't, you didn't have time to dwell on that. The pace of life was such that if it was this one this day, you'll be doing something else the next. Um, you know, it, it wasn't till much later in life that the aggregate wear and tear of that type of traumatic event um, starts to tell on you, uh, you know, in, in that sense. And it shapes the way you approach things in later life. Interested to understand, when you go to these scenes, regardless whether it's in a theatre of war in Northern Ireland, whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq, when you go to these scenes where you're carrying out these, almost these victim identifications and body recoveries, I would imagine there are a number of conflicting priorities. And one of those priorities for you on the ground, and we talk about it a lot, is your own safety and security in terms of maybe secondary devices you know you are vulnerable because you're there not only carrying out the job of an investigator on behalf of at the time her majesty's queen's armed forces equally you're still a target how does that play in your mind to allow you to do your job effectively whilst you know that there are potential threats out there uh well the first thing you've got to do is trust those around you um you know the, the teams you know at the time i, I got in the area had been secured. Uh, it had been swept by ATO to see if there were any secondary devices. Um, the IUC and the army had, had provided a secure perimeter to allow you to get in and do your job. But you only had, a, it wasn't, you know, you couldn't seal off for days at a time. You were talking literally hours, if you were lucky, minutes, you know, under an hour to clear a scene. Wow. Um, because you were at threat. You know, in, in these locations in Northern Ireland, you were at threat from, uh, and of course, 
those could have been, you know, as, as was Warren Point, the, the massacre at Warren Point was, that was a come on. The first incident was a come on to bring the troops in. Um, so you're very much aware of that. Um, you, you go in there, but your job is to go and do your job. So you trust those around you. You get in and do your bits and pieces because you know the quicker that you get out, the quicker they can get out as well. Um, um, and you've got to balance that with you're dealing with two individuals, you know, who have been murdered. They deserve the respect and dignity that you can that you can give them. You need to look after them. Um, and, it, and it was something that I took on that, that, that for a period of time as an investigator, irrespective of the, where the deaths occurred that I dealt with, you know, deaths in the UK, deaths in Northern Ireland and, and Germany and, and those out of Iraq and Afghanistan, you took over a stewardship and you were responsible for that individual or those individuals. And you, you took that and they're people you're dealing with. Ne I, you know, never let my, you know, even in those early days, it was clear to me I was dealing with, with people. Um, and they might not be able to know it, but you're the, you know, you're the first person that's going to come along uh, and you, you've got to deliver that d dignity. I, it, I always thought, you know, how would I want to be treated? You know, uh, yeah. and, and, and so I based it on, you know, based my approach on that. So, you know, all of those emotions and everything else, they, they do run through. But as a youngster, you didn't really recognise them. I don't know if you, you know, you did, I didn't have the emotional maturity um, to be able to even recognise or process that. I just got in and did it, you know. Um, and you felt a sense of duty in doing that, doing it well and doing it properly and doing it with dignity and respect that was that was what you did, and 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 I know that all the people that I've served with, and those that worked in the you know in the theatres from the Falklands and, and Afghanistan and Iraq, um, that's how they approach it, you know, and, and it's a very unique duty for service policemen for, from all three services to to have to do. Before we move on to your. Um your time in in west berlin i just wanted to finish up with was there a was there a bit of was there a respect for the capabilities of the ira i, I had no respect for them you know the the the, uh, the terrorists the criminals yeah. you know um it, northern ireland is a beautiful country the northern irish people irrespective of their um, um of their affiliations i i found them to be you know, they are lovely, genuine, open people. But there, there was this terrorist element from on both sides that, that were capable of great atrocities that we've seen over the years, uh, 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 you know. Um, so, no, I don't, didn't have a respect for their, their, uh, their capabilities. They were, they were criminals. They were terrorists. They preyed on the weak. And they went after weak, you know, they, they, they went after soft targets, targets they could get. Um, and, and I don't believe that they had their justification. They would disagree with me on that. Um, and again, emotional maturity years on, you know, we agreed to disagree on that. You know, th th that was their perspective. But no, no admiration, nothing on that. They were, um, they were, for want of a better word, an enemy that we had to find, you know, and close with if we could. 
You're listening to part one of my chat with retired Colonel Len Wassell of the British Royal Military Police. In part two, Colonel Wassell and I discuss the sensitive investigations that are carried out following the death of British military personnel in the theatre of war and the importance of supporting families who seek answers as to why their loved one isn't coming home to them. There was often the need to brief families face to face. Now, my investigators were either still in theatre or were recovering from theatre. And so I took it upon myself wherever I could to go and do that, gather the information, go and do those briefings myself so that I, you know, I provided a face to those people that they could shout at sometimes. Next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.